Welcome to The Systemic Way. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking to Carol Halliwell. Carol has been working in public services for four decades in mainly adolescent mental health services. She is a consultant systemic psychotherapist and has done that in West London, as well as teaching students and leading workshops in places like IFT. Carol's theoretical position and practice is informed by post-structural ideas and social justice. And today we're going to be talking to her about her relationship with Just Therapy. Thanks, Julie. To try and set the context of what Just Therapy is about and how it came about, we will try and give a bit of a brief overview. So Just Therapy was developed by Wardgrave, Kiwi, Tamasesi, Campbell, Tohaka at the Family Centre in Wellington, New Zealand. They were a group who wanted to push out the boundaries of therapeutic practice and apply a fresh critique to the experiences of social pain that they considered were not being adequately responded by caseworkers and therapists. They focused on the cultural, gender and socio-economic context of therapy, drawing on their experiences as women and men, Indigenous Maori, Samoan and New Zealand Europeans. In the development of Just Therapy, there was a plurality of starting points. Firstly, there was the vast body of international social science knowledge. Secondly, and of no less importance, were the traditions of healing and the process of healthy relationships in the three cultures from which they came, Maori, Samoan and Pekea, which is New Zealand European. Thirdly, were the separate gendered experiences of the women and men. Fourthly, there was a shared commitment to social justice. And fifth, an open belief in a universal spirituality that acknowledged the sacredness of people's stories, particularly in their exposure of pain. A view of spirituality that was not institutionalised in form but spirituality that was essentially about relationships. These five aspects were the pivotal points of collectivity in the early reflections, sharing and debate of Just Therapy. The Just Therapy approach is termed just for two reasons. Firstly, just refers to equity and justice. The work has grown up around the notion that many, though not all, of the physical health, mental health and relationship problems people have are the consequences of power difference and justice. There is a substantial body of literature that associates cultural marginalization, gender inequities and low income households with physical and mental health. Secondly, the approach attempts to identify the essential elements of therapeutic work. It is just or simply therapy, not impeded by the limitations of some professional approaches and Western cultural bias. It is a demystifying approach that enables a wider range of practitioners, including those with skills and community experience or cultural knowledge. The term just therapy does not suggest a dilution of therapeutic knowledge and competence, but rather a distillation of therapeutic practices. And I guess we're really lucky today, Cesar, to have Carol here to talk to us about her relationship and experiences of Just Therapy. 
Should we share some of our thoughts? I think it's fair to, I think it's important for us to say that we really wanted to explain a bit about just therapy and we took our facts or our explanation from the Encyclopedia of Couple and Family Therapy. And acknowledging which what which is what Carol also does, that that is just one retelling of a story. And what we get to hear from Carol is her experiences and her connections to what is a really inspiring approach and something that has led towards the third order approach of social justice being a main consideration of family therapy. Please enjoy. Hey, Carol. Hi. How's it going? Yeah, I'm good. And you? How are you both? Not too bad. Not bad, thanks. Starting place for our conversation is to for you to say from what position you're going to be talking from. Yeah. And, yeah. For, and I think that's important for everybody to hear. I mean, I think it, it's an interesting invitation that you've issued to me to kind of think about the influence of other people's work mm-hmm. and other people's work that's derived from a completely different culture and a completely different philosophy to the work in the UK. So that, you know, that in itself is is interesting about, you know, how come I was influenced by that work and those ideas and what's captured me and how am I living some of those ideas in my work. So that that's interesting of itself. Um, and, you know, in terms of the family-centred team, which has become known as the kind of just therapy team for some decades now, I first got to know them in the 1990s when they were in London um, uh, with Charles Waldegrave and Kiwi Tamasisi and Wally Campbell at that point. And six of us from the place I was working in went to hear them. Um, And we were really impressed with how they were thinking about gender and cultural accountability at that point. And in fact, we invited them to come to Northgate to talk with our patient and staff group. I was working in an inpatient therapeutic community, um, in an inpatient therapeutic community for adolescents. And we got very interested in the whole accountability back to patients. This was way before user involvement and thinking about what that might mean. Um, And they very generously came for the afternoon and they talked with us and we had the patient group listening about thinking about gender and accountability issues and how the work of the men who are working with people with women who've been on the receiving end of sexual violence or male gender male driven violence how that was accountable to women and how in uh, the just therapy work the work that with with maori and pacific island families was accountable to those cultural caucuses and i think for me the resonance for me about that was all about justice it was about social justice uh, and that resonance for me is to do with my history. Uh, and my history is that um, I'm from a northern working class town. I was there only a week ago, which is Rochdale, which is where the co-op started. Mm-hmm. And it was a town, ta- and I am on the receive, you know, I've 
gain the unearned rights and privileges that I have as now that I live my life as a white middle class woman because of the commitment to social justice in that town where education was really highly prized, where the fully comprehensive system was driven when I was growing up so that all children had an equal chance and that I had a fully funded university education. So, you know, I was realised that the connection for me with the, with, the, with the Just Therapy team was entirely about social justice and how much I had benefited from inequities being addressed. I was just wondering about when you first went and heard this talk and the connection you made with your own life. And I was wondering, and the connection to social justice, if if that was sort of one of those moments where you made that connection. Well, it's a journey rather than a moment. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly when I did my systemic training at the TAVE, it was a very good fit for me. I did the Pulse Milan um, MA with Caroline Lindsay, David Campbell and Charlotte Burke. And those ideas fitted for me because they connected to my feminism in the 1970s. So I did my training in the 90s. And finding a therapeutic paradigm that thought politically was very important for me. I think you've probably you've talked to Gwyn Daniels about this as well, haven't you? And and you know the the just therapy ideas and indeed some of the narrative paradigm ideas that have been developed, the connections with community work and social justice, um, and addressing inequities, is terribly important. Mm. It's a, a value that I hold dear and that you know speaks to me. So I think that fit and that journey was already there, Julie. Mm. And and I and I'm I, I guess it it leads me on to I don't know about for you Cesar, but it, you know I know that you know Carol for for many years you've worked in cam service um, and I'm sure like you mentioned another role just now that you're in an inpatient when you first mm-hmm. heard that talk. Um, how how did how have you woven those ideas of social justice and politics into your work well the language is fascinating Mm. the language that you're using about weaving and woven Mm. for two reasons my father was a weaver in a cotton mill you know when I was brought up he was working 12 hour days five days a week sometimes Saturday mornings to support the family as a weaver in an industrial mill after the world after world war ii um and of course, that's how the family was supported. And, and the weaving metaphor is also fascinating because it's a big metaphor in Maori and Pacific Island culture. Mm-hmm. The idea of weaving strands together, weaving communities, generations, meanings together. So, you know, that, that whole idea of weaving things together um, fitted for me in all sorts of ways. And, you know, I first, when I met them in, I think it was 96, 96, 97, and they came to Northgate for an afternoon. They then said, oh, come. So I did. 
a year later I went to New Zealand and I spent a month with them um, on a kind of sabbatical and was sort of gobsmacked at the complexities of the therapeutic work that they were doing within the communities and and the values that they were living um, and how it challenged my thinking too and I think and I think the the one of the kind of big things for me and you will have done understood this as you become there was two kind of big issues for me that really resonated first of all that therapy is about sacred stories given in trust and I think there's something really important about that and not kind of taking away from that rather than you know making people's problems scientific in that way Mm -hmm. actually seeing that these are stories that are held dear to people's hearts Mm um and and also thinking about local knowledge over global knowledge. And I think that's been very much part of my teaching and supervising and clinical work over decades. But actually local knowledge, cultural local knowledge, whether it's of the area you're working in, the cultures of the people you're working with, is much more important than these overarching global understandings of the world that we're invited into by this scientific therapeutic paradigm. Oh, can you tell us, so when you came across um, Just Therapy and the, and these ideas, how it fit with the kind of the systemic model and, and the ideas of the time? It's an interesting question because I think, you know, if you do some of the reading that the Just Therapy and Family Centre team have published is that they had a huge critique of the systemic ideas of the time. And there were some big fallouts at international conferences over the years um, because they felt that the systemic mainframe was not thinking politically, was not thinking about the social justice issues, wasn't thinking about the inequities that are around. Now, of course, there were big areas of the systemic world that were doing that. If you think about Amelda McCarthy's work and the Fifth Province work, they were doing that beautifully and they, you know, they made very good connections with the family centre team but generically initially the systemic world was not thinking very politically certainly the Milan group weren't and if I may and I'm going to go maybe slightly to the side but when you we were talking about politics I was thinking I suppose I was I was thinking about where we're at now and what you hear all the time now is you know cost of living um and I was just wondering about your thoughts, Carol, about where we're at as a systemic community now in terms of bringing politics or therapy being a political act. Well, I think I, I think we're in our infancy of doing that, Julie. Mm. I do not think as an organisation or as a profession we're doing anything like enough politically to challenge things or influence things. I think... You know, I think in other parts of the world, people are challenging things much more. Mm. Um, you know, they just therapy team got very involved politically. They got very involved, and they still are, with social policy and political policy and how that impacts on people's lives um, and thinking about building communities. I think we're a long way from that. Now, I think there are all sorts of um, acts that people do in their daily practice 
to make a contribution to social justice. But I think as a profession, we're not terribly organised or terribly active. Mm. You know, if I think about um, when I was first at the family centre and I noticed when families came to see them, two things happened that really struck me. First of all, they fed them, which I think is very important. And secondly, they offered, if the families wanted, to pray with them. So, you know, that, that kind of secularization of therapy, they really challenged that and began to think, actually, that's part of Western colonization of therapy to make it all very secular and sterile and, and not related to things. Mm. And, it, and, you know, and it makes me think just like little, little micro acts. Some years ago in the service I worked, we had a, uh, a Somali young man who developed a very severe eating disorders for all sorts of particular reasons. Um, and sometimes he would just turn up at our service without an appointment. Um, and actually, we had a box of food for him, you know, and, and it was labelled so-and-so snacks. And he was able to say, oh, I'd like that one, because sometimes that was really important, was to feed him first, not just because of his eating disorders, but because of his family's poverty. So, you know, those kind of micro acts, I think, are terribly important sometimes. And I'm certainly, you know, it's it's uh, not uncommon when we were working live, which was a very long time ago, you know, if families were distressed to go and make tea and to say, look, we can sit and take our time. But this doesn't, you know, we just need to, this is precious, I know. So there's just some things about thinking about how we do those in our own practices, really. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they, 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 in the um, family centre work, there are kind of three strands which are very self-governing, which is the Pakia, the white European strand, the Maori and the Pacific Island strand. But then they developed um, three strands of meaning for working with families, which I think is really powerful and it sits with me loads. That's to do with belonging, liberation and sacredness mm. and I think we neglect those at our peril as therapists if we don't think about where people belong where they're getting their belonging how they're living the liberation stories of their ancestors you know we're sitting here today the three of us because our ancestors made sacrifices for us to get this kind of level of education and to get this level of job and to actually acknowledge that and, you know, and to acknowledge when we're drawn into the kind of secularization of therapy, when actually other people might, that might not fit for them. Yeah. And, and I, and I, you know, I know when we were preparing um, to come speak to you today, I think the sacredness aspect really stood out for me. And, and Cesar and I had a conversation and I've just been on a, on a, on a Buddhist meditation retreat for seven days. And I think, mm -hmm that word really stood out for me because there was, which again is a privileged position in lots of ways for me to even even been able to take that time to, to do that was one of my other thoughts. But one of the things from that seven days that I took away in terms of practice and work was just the, the sacredness of, you know, part, part of the retreat was really going and connecting with trees and listening to the trees and what the trees might be saying or what the birds might be saying. And I imagined when I was 
reading about the just therapy, there is taking that type of wisdom um, that's out there as well to connect with in terms of thinking about therapy. Yeah, but I think I think they really stretch that mm-hmm. as well in that they really challenge the secularization of therapy mm-hmm. as a way of, as it was an act of colonization of therapy. Right. You know, white westernized psychological ideas were imposed on Maori communities and Pacific mm. Island communities. And those are acts of colonization. Mm. And, and, you know, the professionalization of wisdom is an act of colonization. Mm. You know, I think they, the Family Center were really clear that, you know, when various members of their staff group were appointed, it was to do with their wisdom, not necessarily their professional qualifications. Mm. And their wisdom and their their standing in the local community, what the Maori people would call their manor, but you know how they were seen as treasured elders, treasured komatu, um, and how they had things to offer. Now that might mean that they don't have a professional qualification, and we've gone so much around that professionalization of wisdom that that contributes to things being secularized and 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 you know this scientific knowledge being driven. And and we forget that other communities have their own wisdoms and how do we make space for that? In the book um, about just therapy, the one you recommended for us to read, um, they talk about the word just and the relevance and the importance of the word just. And it was the, the kind of two, two meanings assigned to it of one, it being about justice and social justice but the other about the things you're beginning, you're talking about now, the kind of demystifying psychotherapy and mm. broadening it beyond, mm. you know, social sciences and the professional world. I wonder how that was kind of received by the world of psychotherapy at the time. I and mean, was that heavily criticised? Oh yeah, oh for sure, for sure, for sure. I mean, how could it not be? Because they had a whole, they had a whole kind of professionalised agenda to 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 defend. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, but I think, you know, I think there's something about how they've really challenged contributions. That, you know, thinking about which is one of the things I like to do in training, as you know, Cesar, just to think about, you know, what are our ancestors' contributions to our work? You know, what 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 are our ancestors saying about what they want us to think about our work? You know, I had a conversation with um, Kiwi Tamasisi when I was last there with um, her and Alistair and Alistair Bush. And she asked us this question that kind of floored both of us. You know, she said to us, well, how do you make your work accountable to the generations that have been before and the generations that are still to come? Oh, my God. You know, I often think about kind of the next few months. I don't think about what the wider aspect of that. And there's something really important about that, I think. And thinking about, you know, if we're involved in middle or higher management, how do we think about policy initiatives? And so, you know, we're all into this service redesign stuff and all that kind of stuff. Well, how do we think about who is this going to marginalise? Who are these practices going to marginalise the most? Who are we going to exclude in this? And I think there's something about that responsibility that needs asking, that we have a responsibility to use our voice to ask that. 
I'm really interested in the the conflict that you you, you said kind of caused at conferences. Um, and are there any stories around it? Yeah. Was it was it conflict well, with not, the Milan team? They're not my stories to tell. So you know, I'm not. I'm trying to avoid doing colonising acts because I think there are other people's stories to tell. But inevitably, there were issues around that. You know, and, and if you look at some of the stuff that the um, Dalek Centre have written about, they've talked about that as well. Because I think you know, these. If one thinks about what I, the Just Therapy team brought, they brought a non-European lens, although it's a country that was colonised by Europeans, as was quite a lot of the Pacific. Um, but they began to challenge the European lens as part of all the stuff that was going on in New Zealand. I mentioned that I'm going to be there this time for um, Waitangi Day, which is the 6th of February, which, of course, is the treaty that was signed between the British and the Maoris. Um, and both sides had very different understandings of treaty. And that treaty is still debated and is still alive 150 years later. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the debating the inequities that were represented there. Now, you know, in Europe and certainly in the UK, it's very recently that we've begun to even face tiny bits of our acts of colonisation and what we've done to the rest of the world and you know the, the contributions we've made to the current crises historically. Accountability was one of the, the a big part of yes the approach, wasn't it? Yes, yes, and a, and a, you know accountability back to the communities that they serve. Now that that for me is translated into having a a huge interest and in really wanting to drive the service user agenda, but not piecemeal. You know to get that to get our services accountable to the service users because I think it's done piecemeal in lots of ways, because, you know, I think getting our services much more accountable to service users, and so it should be, because they pay our wages. You know, I'm a northern working-class girl. The taxpayers pay our wages. They pay my pension. So, you know, we have some accountability back to them. And I guess, I, I don't, well, in terms of that accountability, there's also something when I was reading the paper about the just just the whole way that um, the workplace is sort of structured in that there's those retreats taking time, taking space to, to really to reflect, to allow, I suppose, space for accountability to, to be part of that as well. Um, and that spread, you know, in that they were doing that they did that initially in their service i mean i'm not sure how much they're doing now but but for quite a while they did it with with the dulwich people too with cheryl and michael david denborough so they were joining those kind of retreats um and and i think there is just something about the knowledge from the antipodes and and the way things have been done in australia and in new zealand are really rather different but there's still something about thinking about the colonization by the white people mm. and, and what and what that meant for those 
communities. You know, initially it was the missionaries that conquered the Pacific and then the whalers and then the the colonizers of land. So there was there was lots of waves of it, which I knew nothing about when I first went. And they, you know, they found this entity and took me in hand and made sure I was educated about those things. And I think, you know, for me also that sort of translates into thinking about um, how I support staff mm. who are not from white British backgrounds. You know, what I do to address their marginalisations, how in supervision I think about making space for us to talk about the acts of marginalisations that are happening for them and the acts of racism that are happening for them, how I make that clear at an interview that I'm interested in in people's heritages and I'm interested in wanting to think about how we support them when they're being marginalised, not just in terms of institutional stuff, but in terms of how, you know, I need to at times find my voice actively to support them. And that means confronting other people at times. What really came out for me on almost every page of the book and all the articles was the recognition of the kind of the broader social structures impacting on people's mental health and taking that as the kind of lens to look at it. And, you know, the film Once Were Warriors. Yeah. The opening scene was in my mind throughout reading it a lot. And if you remember it, the opening scene is it starts with a, a beautiful picturesque frame of like New Zealand, wildlife, New Zealand, rural. And then it suddenly pans out. You hear road traffic and it mm. shows that that was just a advert, advert for, I think it's like cigarette mm. company. And it shows you the kind of urban industrialized society that now the Maori were living in, showing that, framing their difficulties within that kind of mm. urbanization. And I guess, I guess it was coming up for me of recognizing the difficulties for people not just as kind of internal or within the family dysfunction, but bringing in the wider context of society. And this is what Just Therapy begins to do a lot. Can you, I know you're saying it's not your story to tell, but I'm interested in your kind of, um, your view on it, on that kind of realisation that they went through and the influence that then had well, the, on... You know, the, the, the big thing of systemic work isn't about family dysfunction, it's about context-defining meaning, You know, that's the thing that we drum into trainees, isn't it? Day in, day out. And context means things like the political context, the financial context. It means things that, you know, during assessments, asking families about how they're coping financially, where they're getting their support from, who supports them spiritually. That That's a really important aspect of things, I think, that we... If we and if we don't do that, we're contributing to this kind of secularization and decontextualizing things. And I think that's what the Just Therapy team helped us all to think about: is how do we not resist that lure of decontextualizing things? Because life, our life as therapists in the NHS is much simpler if we decontextualize. But then we're not not much use to people. But I also wondered amongst that, and I suppose I'm going back to the sacredness here because it's something that I've experienced, I suppose, over this last week. And then I've stepped back into London and I stepped back into work and sacredness and within that I'll include spirituality is that that seems to me culturally from where I'm, I'm talking about 
I suppose London or the West, it's it's it can be quite an uncomfortable or unfamiliar space mm. for people. But I hear from what you're saying, I can also recognise the the value and the importance of that. And but not for everybody. And that's where I think about service users and what you're saying and and how mm. I don't know. I suppose my question is, it 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 can feel like a a, a tricky place to move into but it I hear from what you're saying how it's also a very valuable place to move into well I think I think it's a little more than a okay. valuable place I think it's a very um well integral we yeah, it, yeah if we don't address it what are we saying to people yeah you know if we don't ask people about what supports them, you know, and do they have a prayer or religious life or spiritual life and how does that help or not and what's that community like for them, then if we don't ask that, we're just seeing them as a, a, a bunch of symptoms mm. and not as a as a whole person with a history. Mm. You know, I, I, I've worked primarily um, clinically with adolescents over the years and um, – I quite often have conversations about God with adolescents. Mm. They're right in the middle of the meaning of life stuff. That's mm. what they're meant to do. You know, that's what they're meant to be thinking about. And if we don't ask that stuff, then then what are we doing? Yeah, thank you. It is really making me think about what you said about it's so much easier for a cams approach or even social work or a, the state's approach yeah to not really dive into context yeah yeah and and yeah what message that does that give families are we now then saying you're the authors of your problems not all of this not yeah. the poverty yeah. not the housing that you're living in yeah or, or, or you know the fact that you, you you might have been in Grenfell Tower when all that was going on or a nearby tower when you were seeing people's lives destroyed in front of you because of neglect of housing issues, then if we don't talk about that stuff, then how can we expect people to trust us mm. with, the, with the totality of their experiences? And Which I'm, brings, yeah, oh, go I mean, on, to, Cesar. To the, you know, the, this, the principle and the value and, and I guess the metaphor of liberation being a big part mm. of the approach and how that, I guess I'm thinking about by taking that perspective of saying the difficulties, the mental health difficulties that you're exper- people are experiencing is a symptom of these wider societal issues. Having this kind of spirit of liberation, the therapeutic properties within that and how, how helpful that is for people. And the que- I, I guess it's, it, it also equates to... How do we, as therapists, liberate ourselves from this secularization of therapy and the professionalization of wisdom? You know, how do we give ourselves permission and create ally groups and communities of support where we can begin to ask those sorts of questions? Because, you know, a lot of what you would have read from the Just Therapy team is really, is really challenging that individualization and the individualization of suffering, the privatization of suffering, mm. rather than seeing it within a societal and relational and indeed cultural context. Mm. 
And I, I yeah, I, I suppose what I was going to ask before, in some way, it's is connected to that in terms of the importance of stories to our human development, mm. really. And and it makes it, it makes me think of the the you know the the importance of stories to help us make meaning of our lives. And in a, and in a way, we invite people into a therapeutic space and, you know, in work to do that. But we can, there's somehow, we there can be a disconnect of the yeah. sacredness of those stories. Yeah, and which, and which stories do we not say? Yeah. You know, when I, when I was first in New Zealand in the, mid-90s, I was greeted in a very uh, cultural and specific Māori way at the family centre. You know, I'd, I'd flown to via Australia and I'd had a day trip in Australia, which is madness now, I think, but yeah, 36,000 in Sydney. So I went to the Opera House and did the Harbour Tour, you know, as you do, and then I flew to Wellington. And of course, I felt crap because I'd never flown that far. Um and it was very kind of formally done. And my ancestors and their ancestors were spoken to and sung to in three different languages, celebrating the fact that, their path, that our paths were crossing at that day. Well, I was a complete wreck. You know, I was not not only was I jet lagged, I just I spent the whole time in tears thinking. And what it meant for me was I think, oh, my God, my ancestors have never traveled this far. I know that. I know none of my ancestors have been this far. And and that was a real kind of, that's right, I'm here because of their contribution to my life and, and the Just Therapy people's ancestors' contributions to their lives. So immediately there was this, whoa, okay, with the traditional Maori waiatas and the speeches and, and of course, the food of, immediately. <laughs> so there was something about that kind of, cultural way of doing things that communicated that to me and I some and and I guess when I hear you talking about ancestors it also makes me think of um they're not just stories in a way they're there's 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 spaces we can live in a world and and I, I'll use it in terms of a therapeutic space where we we might we might speak of sort of a, a history or what's happened in the past or mm. what might be coming up without thinking mm. that these things can exist here and now with us yeah like like you just experienced with ancestors and the power of those that those invitations in terms of conversation and, and you know in westernized societies again we're invited to kind of dislocate ourselves from those experiences mm. uh, yeah, and, and not exactly. and, and see them as past stories rather than the, uh, them still having a living influence on us. Mm. And I think it's the living influence that's really important. Mm. Which, which really makes me think of genograms, actually, and how we might also use and talk and share those in spaces. Mm. Because there's a different invitation when I hear when I hear you say that about those things really being present. Yeah, but but how you know and how we when we're seeing people clinically or when we're talking in supervision, how we keep those ancestral stories in mind. 
mm. and what and what that means for people and it's you know it isn't just about I think I sent you off to read other things as well. I think I think you have to read some of Alistair Bush and Waramu Nainai's work as well. But you know, really being able to think about well, what does how do those stories still live, mm. and how are those people still living in our daily lives, mm. and 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 how are their stories of liberation? living in our daily lives you know my one of my ancestral stories is that my maternal grandmother annie jones was sent up from wales at 14 to be in service now you know these days that's a very powerful thing but you know that the meaning of that for me and thinking about having a cleaning lady is just not viable <laughs> there's just sort of something about the meaning of that and the meaning of thinking about, you know, in our current community, how many of people in the UK who are refugees who are coming to the UK with immense skills as engineers or lawyers or scientists or doctors and we're not allowing them to work. You know, there's something really important about this stuff and that's about the me acknowledging the meaning of that with families. I've seen many refugee families over the years and I always ask them about what skills have you come to the UK with that has not been made visible, that's not been acknowledged and appreciated? I can see you thinking, Cesar, and I'm wondering what question yeah. you've got brewing. <laughs> I don't want to move from where we're, where we're going, but I am interested in the kind of the, the links to kind of a post-modernist approach, post-structuralist mm. and post-colonialism. Those ideas really stick out um, and it feels like just therapy is located right within there, but also somehow challenging some of those ideas as well. Well, I, I think Charles Waldegrave and Cole wrote a very important paper about the challenges of postmodernism um, because, uh, you know, postmodernism, we all have trouble with postmodernism because not all truths are equal. There may be multiple truths, but they're not all equal. They've all got power. So, you know, uh, so if you're staying with kind of postmodernism and poststructuralism, you're not getting the social justice stuff. You've got to kind of move on to thinking about post-structuralism and post-colonialism and thinking about how meaning gets defined and who has the power for meaning to be defined. You know, we're straight back to some of Foucault's ideas. And, of course, you know, Kiwi Tamasisi would question the kind of whole Foucault and knowledge base. That's one of the first things she did with me about, well, thinking about, well, hang on a minute, why are you so organised by this Frenchman? Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is just something about postmodernism and its limitations. And, it, and postmodernism itself challenges therapy and it challenges us all the time because we are, we are living and breathing these individualised discourses as, as they are in New Zealand and Australia and in other countries. But that, that, those discourses immediately marginalise Indigenous people. You read some of Vicky Reynolds' stuff, then you know that's that's very it's very helpful what they're thinking about around those communities about indiv in, indigenous peoples. And going back to what you said about kind of really, really championing and valuing local knowledge, mm. and um, something else that was really big about just therapy is 
they recruited people from the community to support the people yeah within the community yeah um which we we don't see often here you know um the cams team i i i work in doesn't really represent the demographic of the community of people no. we work with and that's very common isn't it Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think places like the Marlborough in the 80s and 90s and noughties were doing a very good job of that in that they were, you know, that they were making themselves accountable to the local community and employing cultural consultants, et cetera, et cetera. And there's something about, you know, I feel very strongly about when we um, uh, ask service users for help, we must pay them. We must ensure that they're paid. And it really annoys me when they're not. I just think it's not on, you know, where in fact, because I've had a practice for many years of always having service user on interview panel and making sure they are paid. There's just something about those acts, those are political acts in and of themselves, making sure there's a budget for that and that they're not just doing it out of gratitude or goodwill because we're using their wisdom and their knowledge. What message do you, does that send? If we don't pay them. No, if, if if we do pay them. If we do pay them, them we're, we're telling them that we value them. And that they're doing a job for us. But the flip side is true as well, right? If we don't pay them, we're we're not valuing. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And how common is that that practice? It's very common. Yeah, and, and how unethical is that practice? There's not there's something about the ethics here. Mm. What other questions are the two of you sat with that you haven't answered asked yet? I'm interested in its in the connection or the I don't know the the separation perhaps to narrative therapy. So I know you said that um, people from the Dalit Center were attending some of these reflective retreats. Um, and I wonder if there's is there's lots of crossovers, but also some some tensions or deviations between. Well, I, I think um, the family centre team wouldn't say they are narrative therapists. However, one has to think that the narrative paradigm has come out of post-structuralism and social anthropology. It came out of a different theoretical route than systemic ideas did. And there's something really important about that. And, you know, Dulwich have taken on the idea of community work big time and thinking about working with the Indigenous peoples there and what that means. And, and I think the Family Centre certainly has some influence on that, for sure. And, that you know, they're pretty close in, I think. They have a lot of connections with each other. But the, the Family Centre team would not say they're narrative therapists at all but they have had quite a lot of influence in that field. And I think, and I think the connection is thinking about, you know, the uh, narrative field being underpinned by post-structuralism and some of the French philosophies, as well as literary criticism and social anthropology. Now, you know, that's very different than the systemic world. I want to bring it back to you, Carol, and the influence that this has had on your career. And, you know, so you've, you've kept close connections yeah. to, to the family centre. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've, you work here in England. Mm. Mm. 
And I, I wonder how you've, or if you've brought a lot of that into your work in in our con- in this context and how I that's mean, been. I, I, you know, I have, until COVID hit, uh, I have been seeing them every two years. I'm going every two years. And we've met at international conferences around the world and done various things together, which has been fabulous. Um, you know, and they've... Uh, they've okayed it for me to do some teaching about those paradigms in the UK. They're, they're happy for me to do that, which is terribly generous. But And I think, you know, what you're asking, Caesar, is about my the influence on my day-to-day work. And I think the influence day-to-day, some of the things we've been talking about, about thinking about um, addressing secularization, about um, supporting marginalized staff, thinking about policies and initiatives and who it will who it will misrepresent or who what inequities will it you know create. Those are the kind of things that I think about a lot. And I think, you know, and I think in the therapeutic practice. I'm always thinking about the wider context and how it defines people and how we, re- in those narrative therapy ideas, how do we return the gaze on the wider context? I think those ideas of returning the gaze of Michael White were really revolutionary. And I, you know, and I don't think we do. You asked him, Julie, about the systemic world and where it is politically. Mm. I do not think we do much returning the gaze on ourselves to think about, well, what are the political beliefs that we're living day by day in our practice and how do we want to challenge it? Mm. Yeah, and and that's absolutely, I suppose, in one way, what I'm sitting here thinking about as I'm listening to you talking and I suppose in a, in a, in a broader sense, I'm thinking about you sharing that, you know, every two years Mm. you'd go out um, to the, to the family center. And actually, I mean, obviously it's a different thing for different people, but in, in terms of that, of challenging, challenging ourselves as, as practitioners to, to reach outward Mm. much more to Mm. different places to, Mm deepen broaden expand one one's practice and and what that will bring back actually in some ways and i think and i think there's also something important here is that you know there are many ways of doing that yeah and that we can listen to our colleagues who are not from this white european background and hear their experiences and make room for their experiences and you know hear what they want to ask and what they're being stopped from asking, and how we facilitate that. I, I, I work with a fabulous therapist who I appointed some years ago from Africa, um, an African man, uh, and I was doing a piece of work with a girl uh, about two years ago, um, and I went to him and I said, I can't, I can't tell you what a, what a, a mess I've made of something. And I'd assumed that this young woman that I was speaking to was from Nigeria and she was from Ghana. And he, bless him, did not rescue me. He said, oh, my God, yeah, that's a real mess. You're really going to have to do something about clearing that up. So there was something very helpful about it, you know, about thinking about how I do that and what do I do differently. In fact, this girl was incredibly helpful and 
forgiving when I kind of talked it through with her and stuff. But there's just something about hearing your colleagues' experiences and making space for that. You know, and the two of you are from different cultural heritages and how you make space for that in these podcasts is important too. Mm. And where this conversation has taken both of you will be different because of your different heritages. I know I was, I've been thinking, Cesar, actually, I've been wondering um, where it's taken you. It's, it's making me think, how can I show this in my work? Is, is what, even when I was reading and preparing for this podcast, I was like, I feel like I have similar values to what I was reading and they really resonated with me. They really connected with me. The story of the realisation of, families go into the family clinic and presenting you know like they want therapy for stuff that's external and and then sending people away like almost like helping them adjust to racism less depressed but going back absolutely adjust to poor housing and economic hardship and almost it felt like you know like working for the state in a way to yeah and that that really connected with me and it's, it's making me really question my practice mm. and I'm, I'm beginning to be able to I don't know maybe deconstruct some of those thoughts in, in when I'm thinking about cases but where do I go with it where do I where can I begin to kind of embody the spirit of it is where I'm beginning to question That's myself that, you know one of the things that you talked to me about at the beginning was my connection with the family centre and, and the resonances, yeah, that's what we started this conversation about, wasn't it? And, I, you know, I, I suppose I very purposely built the, that relationship and that allyship with them. And I think, you know, and I think that's what I would encourage with you, Cesar, is to build your allyship with people who can do that deconstructing with you and, and be companions on that journey. Because it can feel a lonely place sure. working for a big organization of sure. holding that position. Yeah. Yeah, allyship. So, you know, um, so, build, so building what they would call in New Zealand caucuses and allyship is really important for people that you can, that can stretch you and that you can be accountable to. And that, you know, whether you have some culturally accountable supervision, those kind of things. Mm. The, the culturally accountable supervision is a, a lovely idea and bringing that into case discussions yeah the way they've done it in just therapy if I've got this right is um so in the different sections that you mentioned so the the Maori section the Samoan section and the the Pakea is that how you pronounce that word Pakea Pakea section um because of the um the direction of power mm. The, the the Hakia section were being held accountable by the Samoan sure. and the Maori. And then for the men's group, they were being account they were being held accountable by the, the, yeah. the female colleagues. Yeah. Such a beautiful way to like develop yeah. accountability into discussions, mm. thinking. Mm. So that's something that could be could be created, couldn't it, in, in small teams. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope, you know, and I hope some of this discussion and some of the reading and thinking you've done together has sown some of those seeds and energy to do that. I I actually wanted to 
to read a bit of this poem that I just so happened to have in the back of my book because there's something of that that sort of resonated with me in this conversation. Um, And it's called Clearing by Martha Postlethwaite. And it says, do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait patiently until the song that is your life falls in your own cupped hands and you recognize it and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. And I suppose the bit that resonated with me was about creating this clearing Mm. because there's something of in the work immediate workspace where you know the the invitations to do these things or the nature of the system can feel for me very close closed in around me and there's something about creating that clearing Mm. to give that space to find those people that you Mm -hmm. just said or to reach out in that way to make that change Mm. and that's Mm. something that you know that I suppose has stuck with me to 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 play with to take away to you know you do the two of you creating these podcast conversations is creating space for the people it's creating a community Mm. in a different kind of way Mm. but then there's something about how do you put these things into action yeah this is about activism ultimately I think yeah and I think that's part of conversations that we're mm. beginning to have at our fingertips in some ways, isn't it, Cesar? Mm. Mm. And the third strand of it, so the clinical work coming together with community work, is mm. I, I can kind of grasp it. Mm. But the third element, which was really important to Just Therapy in a family clinic, the, the impact on social policy making, it feels personally for me so far um it's so unreachable mm. um, uh, okay yeah when i when i worked in an in the impatient unit um it was an election day and i sent all the 18 year olds home to vote <laughs> you know there's something really important about that and i know you know the just therapy people are very keen to get out the vote you know, do you talk to the young people you work with about going to vote and the importance of that, for example? You know, do you do you talk to them about the protests that have happened in the last months and years that are around for us? You know, what what it what it means when all these men are being held to account for their terrible violence to women. Do you talk about that? There's something about being able to do those things and clearing the space to do that. Mm. You know, if we're, if we're working with families where there's been terrible violations and terrible injustices and sufferings have been imposed on them. When that stuff's on the news, it impacts on them. And we have to talk about it. That's our, that's our job to talk about that. Mm. Just as it's our job, you know, if I, if I'm, talking with and I do it very frequently when I talk with when I see black parents I talk with them about their worries about their sons 
um, and the treatment of their sons by the police and what that means. There's something about acknowledging those contexts are probably much more important than other things. And as a woman, as from a woman, uh, a white woman in a privileged position, it's my responsibility to create that space, that clearing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in privileging those types of conversations in a like multi-agency or multi-professional team where there's psychiatrists, there's, you know, a psychologist and not to say that they don't also consider context or the wider societal issues, but maybe they do it in a different way. Or, or I mean, if I can say it, not as much as what a systemic family therapy, systemic family therapist might bring to a team. Um, I'm thinking about what impact that has on the person of all, having to hold that position in a team where that context is not always privileged or valued by other modes. First of all, we don't know whether it's privileged by them because we, if we haven't asked. And secondly, it's not just a privilege, it's a responsibility to hold that position. You know, we've had our systemic training, we've been introduced to these ideas, uh, so we have a responsibility to help people think about that. You know, to be able to say in team meetings, what do we know about the racisms that this family have been exposed to? What do we know about their social context and the other marginalisations that they've been exposed to? There's something really putting it out there, really, you, you know, asking that that question is enough sometimes. It plants a seed. That's the whole clearing metaphor that you've come up with, Julie. Yeah. And also, I suppose, in that poem, it says, you know, not, well, what is grandiose or not a big, you know, a, a comment, a invitation for someone to think differently mm -hmm. is some, is a, a and that, you know, that story of what we've talked about today was yeah. how the family centre's different thinking landed with me because it had some resonances and it and it fitted for me and it stretched me in a way that made me think about my responsibilities and my privileges and what that comes with. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you've got another question, Cesar. I'm, I'm sure you have, because I was just wondering actually about places to signpost people to to find out more if they are interested to read about just therapy. Well, you've already mentioned you've, you've mentioned the book, haven't you? Um, so you know, there's the Just Therapy book. There's quite a lot of reference to them in the Dulwich Centre stuff in the Dulwich Centre newsletters and all those things. Um, uh, and there's um, Alistair Bush's and Waira Munaini's book about collaborative approaches to mental health, which I think is very powerful and really kind of takes people's thinking in hand. Um, and thinking about um, post-colonisation as well. There's quite a lot of reading out there about that. And you know, some, you've got some of the reading on the management and leadership course says about thinking about how we do leadership and management in post-colonizing ways thank you carol we we do like to end with a question about the hopes for the future and i mean me personally having this conversation with you has, has really 
began to put my head of where I would like to develop wow. my, my, my work. But I wonder what your, your thinking is around in the kind of, and you have touched on this, but the field of family therapy and where, what would be the, the next? I think, I think the field has moved in that I think it is much more politically aware of context. And I think the fact that, you know, in the last 20 years, a lot of diff- people from different backgrounds and heritages have done the training is fantastic. Um, Now, I'm not saying that that's easy because I think it's very different coming to the training from a non-privileged background, from a non-privileged white background. I think that's a tough call. But I think the field has moved on and that we are thinking more about these sticky questions Um, and, and creating the context like these podcasts and these conversations to talk about this stuff helps sow those seeds for the future, I think. Thank you so much. Good enough, Carol. It's been a real pleasure. I think I sh- we should end with a proper Maori greeting and say to your listeners, Tenakotu, Tenakotu, Katao. And Harimai. <laughs>